North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Blog Talk Radio. Hey, everybody. You've tuned in to Dr. Low Radio. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Noel. And if you don't know me, I'm a naturopathic doctor here in San Diego, and I'm committed to bringing you the very best in natural medicine. Thanks for joining me tonight. Thanks for your continued support for the show. Having so many listeners listen to me on the air, it really inspires me to continue to provide you guys with great shows, great content, and really amazing guests. And tonight we have another fantastic guest joining us. Tonight we'll be talking about the number one clinical diagnosis in medical practice today. So it's very, very common. It's the single most important risk factor for the development of cardiovascular disease. So it's a crucial topic and very relevant to many of us, if not most of us personally. Um, It's very much preventable and treatable with natural medicine, and that's the beauty of it. So I love this show because these things are very much addressed with natural medicine and it's effective. So it's what this show is all about. Um, Before I announce our guest and the topic, mark your calendars for our next week's show. Actually, it's going to be in two weeks. That is with Dr. Daniel Chong. He is a naturopathic doctor in Portland, Oregon. And the topic, he's actually a paleo doc, which I love too. Um, But the topic is going to be all about EMF, so it's electromagnetic fields. Um, basically, you know, the, the phone or the phone lines, the, the electric lines, you know, you sleeping next to an outlet right next to your head, just all of this technology and what it's doing to our health. We're talking all about that and how you can be um, an inhabitant of 2011 but still be healthy um, and how you can realistically address this stuff in your lives. Um, we're talking about earthing as well, which I, I love to talk about with patients. And um, it's going to be a great show. So that will be in two weeks. Um, also, I've announced this on previous shows, The Run. That is a naturopathic doctor, Dr. Dennis Godby, who is running from San Francisco all the way to Connecticut. He's crazy, but he's totally, he has a passion, and he's definitely wanting to spread awareness for natural medicine, and he's actually halfway, if you can believe that. So as we've been living our lives, doing our regular stuff, he's been running 30 miles per day. And he is, last time I heard, he was in Kansas, I believe, so I'm sure he's going to be on Kansas. So if you live in a city between Kansas and Connecticut, um, check out therun.org. Maybe you can uh, catch up with them or go to some of their events. And especially if you have any media connections, um, for sure check out the website and see how you can get involved and help spread awareness for that. Um, So, yeah, that's insane. (laughs) Um, To ask a question tonight, you can, as as usual, call in 818-495-6919. That's 818 Four nine five six nine one nine. I will do my best to check Facebook and Twitter during the show, but sometimes I do miss some questions. So, um, you know, calling in is always the best way to make sure you catch us. The Facebook page is facebook.com slash Noel. That's D-R-L-O-N-O-E-L. And then Facebook is Dr. Lauren, or excuse me, Twitter is Dr. Lauren Noel. That's D-R-L-A-U-R-E-N-N-O-E-L. Mouthful. Tonight's guest, I'm super excited to have him on the show. He's, I consider him a friend of mine, so I'm happy to have him on. Dr. Alex Vasquez, he is an amazing guy. He is a super overachiever and a total inspiration to me. Dr. Vasquez is a doctor of chiropractic medicine, 
osteopathic medicine and naturopathic medicine. So he is a rock star. He's published approximately 90 articles and letters in magazines and newspapers, peer-reviewed journals, including the Alternative Therapies in Health and Medicine, JAMA, The Lancet, The British Medical Journal, The Journal of American Osteopathic Association, and on and on and on. There's really too many for me to list. I would just be rambling. Um, He's currently on faculty at the Institute for Functional Medicine. He's adjunct professor at the National University of Health Sciences and the University of Western States and a researcher and lecturer for Biotics Research Corporation. He's a frequent lecturer throughout the U.S. as well as Europe and Canada. His hobbies include all things outdoors, cooking, spending time with friends, and his dog, Chai. And I also know that he has a big uh, interest in chocolate, which we both share that interest. Uh, For listing of his books, research articles, and seminars, visit his website, OptimalHealthResearch.com. That's OptimalHealthResearch.com. For patient care, the website is HealGrowThriveMedicine.com. I'm super honored to call him a friend, to have him on the show, and I'll go ahead and bring him on there here. My switchboard works properly. Dr. Vasquez, are you with us? I hope that I am. You are. I hear you loud and clear. How's it going? Good. Uh, Things are going very well, Lauren. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to have you on the show. And I feel like I haven't talked to you in years. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I just talked to you 30 minutes ago. Dr. Vasquez, how did this whole journey start for you? I mean, you have a very unique story, obviously, and you have so many different degrees. So why did you choose this path that you have chosen for yourself? Well, a lot of it was just kind of uh, life events and life experience, and sometimes those were, you know, somewhat random. Uh, When I was growing up, uh, my dad was what was called back in the, you know, 70s and such. He was called, you know, a health nut because he actually paid attention to what he ate. And so whenever we would spend time together, even though, of course, you know, the science of nutrition and lifestyle and functional medicine hadn't really developed very much at that point, uh, he was at least aware of the importance of nutrition as a concept. And so, you know, even at a young age, I developed kind of an awareness of what I was eating. And, you know, some foods were to be avoided and some were to be consumed and maybe in different combinations and things like that. Uh, I also remember when I would visit my father in South America, we would always like start the day with uh, orange juice and cod liver oil was the way that we uh, started our mornings off. So um, it, he took some supplements and things like that. So I just got interested in nutrition from a young age. And uh, I think I read my first nutrition book when I was about 14 years old and then just kept collecting books after that, um, you know, obviously until now. So, uh, and it's something that I obviously continue to do. And I try to collect as much information as I can and then share that in my books. Uh, so that's, and I was really good with my hands as a, as a kid. I put a lot of models together and I played with Legos all the time and I, you know, built furniture and had to build decks and, you know, help out around the house. So I had good skills with my hand. I was always very athletic too. I started racing bikes when I was like eight years old or something like that. Played soccer and basketball and used to run foot races and things like a lot of kids do. So long story short, I was good with my hands. I was into sports, and I was into nutrition. And I knew that the only way that I'd be able to combine all those together would be to go to chiropractic college. So that hit me like lightning when I was like 18 years old, and I I knew that was what I needed to do. Like that was it. So I started at Texas Chiropractic College and uh, was obviously a student there for a year and a half or so before I transferred out here to Portland to go to what is now University of Western States. But while I was at Texas Chiropractic College, first of all, I'm happy with the education I got there uh, in many ways. And one of the 
random or chance or serendipitous events that happened when I was there was I was just standing in the hall uh, by the bookstore one day eating lunch, uh, and the nutrition teacher walked by and said, hey, this guy in the this guy's going to give a talk in the gymnasium about botanical medicines, which I had never heard of, really. Like I, that was still kind of a new concept in general, and I didn't know what this guy was talking about, but I knew I was into nutrition, so I said, okay, well, I'll go listen to this guy while I finish my lunch. So uh, being the studious uh, person that I am, of course, I sat in the front row, and it was mm-hmm. Dohan Brown from Bastyr University talking about botanical medicines, and I was just, it was like getting hit by lightning again. So uh, I was like, wow, i got to go there. So this was like, this was the middle of 1993, uh, and six months later, I said goodbye to Texas and uh, moved to Portland just to be closer to the naturopathic school here in Portland and CNM, but also because I knew I was going to eventually transition up to Bastyr in Seattle. So that's how those things got connected, uh, and then I graduated from Bastyr, opened a private practice in Seattle, and moved to Houston for family reasons. Um, and while I was in Houston, worked with a family practice MD, and he kept telling me, he said, you ought to go to medical school, you ought to go to medical school. Well, I was interested in that anyway. I was actually looking at Ph.D. programs at the time uh, in biochemistry and physiology. So I thought, well, I could do a Ph.D. program in seven years, or I could go to medical school in four years, so I just decided to go to medical school. Uh, that way everything would be aligned. So I started medical school in 2006, uh, graduated last year, and that was after I had practiced um, as a naturopathic physician and chiropractic doctor for about six years. So all of those things are what got me here today, so to speak. Um, and I think those were the, the major events. You know, of course, there are always little nuances and conversations that happen along the way that shape all of our lives, but uh, those are the, the big pieces to answer your question. As you're talking, I'm just smiling, just kind of laughing, like, you must have adrenals of steel. So how did you keep yourself strong through this whole process? I mean, it's just so long that you were in school. Right, exactly. Uh, well, you know, I, I really to, to to answer your question most honestly, I have to give you two separate answers, which are actually contradictory. Um, on the one hand, I I respect the fact that I'm that I'm blessed with good health in general. Uh, don't have any major health issues, and I certainly take you know good care of myself as best I can. Uh, but that's not always easy. You know, medical school, for example, we were told uh, in the first month of school that if we were sleeping more than four hours a night, we weren't studying enough. And so the pace in medical school was absolutely just crushing. Um, so, you know, it hasn't always been easy. And there were times when I wasn't healthy. So, you know, the first part of my answer to your question is I'm I'm lucky to have been healthy. Um, you know, weightlifting and biking and running and soccer and a little bit of other sports along the surfing and other sports. Um, that's true, but what's also true is that I had some times when things weren't so good, um, just from being kind of exhausted from the pace. And then, but, but being exhausted from the pace but having to keep the pace up because, okay. I, you know, sometimes we were working, you know, 80, 100 hours a week easy, and mm-hmm. what's the option? There's no there's no pause button in medical school, or, or any of the programs that I went to for that matter. It's not like it's not like we can't have the conversation where we go up to the you know administrators who in my in my medical school all my administrators and deans were ex-military. So the opportunity to get a sympathetic ear there is about zero. Um, right. So like I said, there's no pause button. It's not like I could go up to them and say, look, I really need a week off. No right. way. We had exams every ten days at least, and it was just brutal. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah well, was, I think it's a, a price to... Go ahead. 
Go ahead. There was, there was a price to pay for that. It, it wasn't easy, and at times um, there were consequences to it, and I'm the one who paid the consequences, you know? <laughs> well, we'll find out. No, I think I think that, you know, it's, it's really just a testament of the human will and what willpower can do, and just, you know, it, when you're yeah. pursuing your passion, you have just like this unrelenting, you know, drive to do what you're passionate about. So I just think that's really amazing. And how many books have you written by now, by the way? Well, if we include the one that I published just today, uh, then it's eight. Um, and if we count the one I'm going to publish by Thursday, then it's nine, and that'll probably be it for this week. Uh, I've got a bunch of projects I've been working on right now. Uh, my most recent books have been on hypertension. In fact, I just published a digital version today of my hypertension book, so it'll be available in about two weeks. Uh, and then my next book's Separate from just the revisions and updates of my other books on rheumatology and orthopedics and things like that, uh, the new books are going to be on immunomodulation, uh, overcoming chronic infections, and uh, psoriasis in particular. Psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis are probably my two favorite conditions to treat because they're so complex. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, very often those patients have hypertension, either primarily or secondarily due to the medications that they're on, because we know that Patients with inflammatory conditions are often treated with steroids, and steroids cause insulin resistance and hypertension. So hypertension, the reason I chose that for some of my more recent books and articles is just because it is so common. It's the most common diagnosis in the practice of medicine, uh, and it's often a starting place and a component of the uh, overall clinical picture, so to speak. A lot of times patients don't come in with hypertension. They come in for acne, fatigue, skin rash, uh, irritable bowel syndrome or some other condition, and then we find out they've got hypertension. So we often have to manage hypertension while we're treating other problems. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it just it, ha it just happens so often, especially in the hospital setting, that I just felt like uh, it was necessary to, to really um, address the topic in an authoritative manner and have a single document that really covered everything a to Z, literally. You know, the things I learned in chiropractic college, things I learned in naturopathic school, things I learned in medical right. school, and then later in the hospitals in terms of drugs, uh, which they have their role, uh, especially for acute care. But uh, I, like I say in the book, I think most hypertension drugs should literally be orphan drugs, meaning that they are used so rarely there's hardly a market for them. Um, mm -hmm. in, com in contrast to what we see now where, you know, people take them like candy so that they can perpetuate their... Uh, unhealthy lifestyle. So uh, I'm sure we'll get into lifestyle later, but um, yeah, that's those are kind of my recent projects and uh, subjects of well, the book. Well, it's so amazing. You're so such an inspiration. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to get into, um, you know, how the different trainings you've had, how they all pertain to our topic for tonight. So that'll be great. Let's, yeah. uh, let's take a step back and kind of look at the basics for people who are tuning in. Um, you guys just tuned in. We're talking about hypertension tonight with Dr. Alex Vasquez. Um, what exactly is hypertension for people who aren't familiar with medical lingo? Sure. So hypertension ultimately is a diagnosis, and it's a diagnosis based on a clinical finding of elevated blood pressure. So as I'm sure all of us have gone to the doctor's office and had our blood pressure checked with the blood pressure cuff, uh, what, what's being measured there are two numbers. Uh, we refer to that in healthcare as systolic and diastolic. Systolic is the top number, and diastolic is the bottom number. So systolic is the, the bigger of the two numbers, and we can think of systolic as being, so it starts with an S, and this is the way I memorized it many years ago. Uh, it starts with an S, so when the heart uh, kind of shrinks or contracts, 
it uh, raises the blood pressure because we're squeezing down on a confined space, so to speak, the vascular space. Uh, and when the heart muscle uh, contracts on that vascular space, it raises the pressure. And so that's the systolic pressure. When the heart dilates, then the blood pressure lowers a little bit and we get what's, what we call the diastolic uh, blood pressure. So systolic for squeezing out the blood and diastolic for dilating and opening up and uh, letting things relax a little bit. So when we look at those two numbers, you know, the, it's, this classic cutoff used to be uh, 120 over 80, for example. In that case, the systolic number, the highest number is 120, diastolic is 80. And when we look at that and compare it to the research that's out there, we can say that a person is either high or relatively lower risk for cardiovascular disease. So when the blood's under chronically elevated pressure, it increases a lot of the dynamic and static stresses that are on the blood vessel walls and on the organs like the kidneys and the eyes and the brain and the heart and the lungs. So when the pressure is constantly elevated, then those target tissues, as we call them, start to undergo more rapid degeneration and aging, and it actually damages the arterial walls such that uh, the process of atherosclerosis or clogging the arteries becomes accelerated. So for all those reasons, we look at the high blood pressure as a marker for increased risk for cardiovascular disease. Uh, and so in that sense, blood, high blood pressure contributes to the process of atherosclerosis. However, if the blood pressure is really high, uh, especially if it's acutely high, then it can actually literally blow out the arteries, so to speak. And that's where people can have like, what we call a hemorrhagic stroke, where they bleed into their brain, or they can have a, a, retinal, a retinal hemorrhage where they bleed into their eyes and things like that. So chronic high blood pressure increases the risk for cardiovascular disease. Acute high blood pressure increases the risk for hemorrhage, whether it's in the brain or, or in the eyes. So those are some of the things that I think about to answer your question. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of a barometer, we could say, also, of just overall health. Um, the ideal blood pressure, uh, according to the research, is about 115 over 75. So by the time people are diagnosed with hypertension, when they get to 140 over 90, they're, they're very far, they've, they've deviated quite a bit from what we would consider physiologically optimal, which is, again, 115 over 75. So by the time they're 140 over 90, uh, 160 over 100 for stage 2 hypertension, they've deviated very far from what we would consider physiologically normal and physiologically optimal. Okay, got it. And and we're usually worried about blood pressure getting too elevated, right? But but there can be too low of a blood pressure, right? And what, what could that sure. possibly indicate? Well, that's much more rare, but it can still be serious. So sometimes, for example, patients have high blood pressure, we put them on especially, you know, work in a hospital setting, putting them on medications, then sometimes they respond better than we thought, and their blood pressure just bottoms out, so to speak. Uh, when that happens, people can, feel, can start to feel a little dizzy or faint, um, and that's the biggest risk that we see with low blood pressure uh, is that people feel a little fatigued or, worst-case scenario, they can actually pass out. Now, if they pass out while they're, you know, eating potato chips and watching television, not a big deal. But if they pass out while they're walking across the street or driving a car, uh, then that's a big deal because then we're usually talking about trauma in addition to the low blood pressure. Uh, some things that can cause that, medication overdose, uh, heart irregularity. So, for example, if the heart's beating with an irregular beat and it can't maintain the pressure, like, for example, with atrial fibrillation, uh, the people with that condition can suffer from uh, episodes of low blood pressure. Certain adrenal conditions, which I imagine you've talked about before on your show, when people are really exhausted and fatigued and their adrenal glands just can't keep up with the lot with their life, 
either due to distress or autoimmune destruction called Addison's disease, uh, that's when blood pressure can get too low as well. So, you know, we certainly don't want to see blood pressure too high, but low blood pressure is much more rare, uh, rarely a problem. I had a patient just last week, actually, whose normal blood pressure was about 80 over 55. Uh, and that's just how she had been for years. So, you know, we don't do, any, we don't do anything about that as long as she's not feeling faint or as long as she's consistent throughout her history. But high blood pressure is really where uh, the problem is in, in most in so-called industrialized societies. So how is, how is hypertension diagnosed? Is the blood pressure reading, um, how many times yeah. does that need to happen? Well, we used, used to say at least twice on two different visits, uh, and now I think the guidelines say three times on, over three separate visits. Um, and the reason to have it measured over more than, you know, we want to measure it more than once is because if somebody comes in and they're stressed out or over-caffeinated or they over-ate or over-drank the day before, uh, over-drank as in alcohol, then those things can cause an acute elevation of blood pressure or a subacute elevation of blood pressure. So we don't want to diagnose them and condemn them to uh, what is in the medical world a life of uh, prescription drugs. It's just based on one reading. So it could just be situational. So that's why we try to spread it out over time. However, uh, if a patient comes in and their blood pressure is, you know, 160 over 100, then we pretty much think, okay, this might be higher than normal, but it's still way too high. And uh, I think that that would qualify them for a diagnosis of hypertension, even if it were based on one reading, because 160 over 100 is such a far deviation from physiologically optimal and physiologically normal that we'd probably go ahead and give them some medications to get that under control. Right. Yeah, Americans are just getting so chronically sick that it's like we're comparing ourselves to each other, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, 140 over 90 isn't that bad. But, I mean, it's because a lot of people have high blood pressure. So, yeah, it's really bad. Sure. Uh, right. So, well, we are, mor mortality starts to increase at anything above 115 over 75. So that's why in my book I refer to that as the optimal blood pressure because, our, you know, obviously our goal as patients and as clinicians is to maximize lifespan and minimize uh, health consequences of things that could be avoided. So if mortality begins to increase at 115 over 75, it makes sense to me to call 115 over 75 the upper limit of optimal, and so that's the approach that I take. Yeah, makes sense to me. How common is, is hypertension nowadays? Uh, in adults in the U.S., it is one in three adults, uh, and impressively, uh, it's actually more common in some other countries. Uh, Northern Europe, for example, has a higher uh, prevalence of uh, hypertension than we do here in, in the States. I was surprised to learn that. But um, when you, when, if we were to look at things globally, uh, it's about one in four people. And if we look just at adults, it's about one in three adults. So that's very common. Um, and it's uh, going up, right? The, it is. Just, and just... Good question, and, or a good point, and uh, it's going up just like we see increases in obesity and diabetes and things like that. So, and there's a correlation there, of course. Uh, I think there's also a correlation, and it's not just that I think this, it's actually been proven, that part of the reason that the hypertension uh, incidence is increasing is not simply because we've all become drug deficient. Uh, it's because pe people are not eating healthy uh, everyone's drinking a lot of caffeine, and when people drink caffeine, their insulin goes up, their cortisol goes up, so they urinate out a lot of nutrients like magnesium and potassium and calcium, which would otherwise help to normalize uh, arterial tone and muscle contractility and other factors, insulin resistance. 
but the point that I wanted to make is that we live in an increasingly toxic world as well. Uh, we're all exposed to chemicals. The average American has, you know, tissue evidence of 13 different chemicals in their body, and that's, I don't even think that includes heavy metals like lead and mercury, which can also cause hypertension. Uh, so when we look at stressful lifestyles, overeating, under-exercising, not enough sunshine, therefore not enough vitamin D, the accumulation of all these toxins, which activate an intracellular receptor called the aryl hydrocarbon receptor, which downregulates uh, GLUT4 receptors and then induces insulin resistance, um, and then high levels of insulin promote hypertension in ways that I'll talk about later. But it's just a big snowball effect. I think we're seeing not only nutrition and lifestyle play a role here, but uh, the contamination of the environment by uh, all of our favorite multinational corporations and, and other uh, co-conspirators, uh, including the passive public. So um, there are a lot of factors that play into it, uh, and we'll talk yeah. about those as we go through some of the treatments later. Yeah, it's definitely multifactorial. It's more than just, oh, you have hypertension, avoid salt. I mean, it's like, it's, yeah, or, or let's just put you on medication. It's like it's not serving patients by just jumping to it like that. Sure. So let's let's talk a little bit. So a patient goes in to the doctor, they get their blood pressure taken, they show they have hypertension. Um, what mm-hmm. are some of the things that could be contributing to hypertension, so like a differential diagnosis? Sure, exactly. So as you just said, you know, in, in medicine and chiropractic and naturopathic medicine, we always think of uh, a list of things that could cause the presenting complaint. We call that differential diagnosis. So we have to go through this list and uh, make sure that our patient doesn't have one of these treatable causes of hypertension before we ascribe their hypertension to being idiopathic, which means we don't know the cause, or essential, which also means we don't know the cause. In the medical world, like uh, most MD medicine and most DO, hospital-based medicine, they believe that, and it is a belief system, they believe that uh, hypertension is about 90 to 95% idiopathic or essential, meaning we just don't know why it happens. I think that is bogus, and that's part of the reason why I wrote my book, uh, to kind of expose that for what it is. And um, maybe later in the show we'll get to talk about some controversial and uh, controversial and conspiracy uh, ideas. But anyway, uh, we'll Definitely. save that later. Um, <laughs> but, sure, we go through this differential diagnosis list. So if a patient comes into me, for example, and they've got high blood pressure, maybe they knew it or maybe I'm the one who finds it, uh, you know, it's my responsibility to make sure they don't have something else going on that could be causing this. Uh, and the reason for that is, you know, if they've got a, a primary cause, then obviously we need to treat that. Now, it doesn't mean we're not going to treat them with nutrients and or medications uh, in the meanwhile, but we still need to look for and try to address an underlying cause. Uh, and I can go through a list of those because I've got 24 items on my list. So. Uh, I'll try to speed through those real quick. Um, there's a condition called aortic coarctation, which usually presents in young boys, typically. Uh, that can cause high blood pressure. Uh, cocaine use can cause high blood pressure, and we saw plenty of that in the hospitals. Patients would come in in a hypersensitive crisis. We'd say, uh, do you use any uh, recreational drugs? They would, of course, say no, and we'd do a drug test on them anyway, and then, of course, you find cocaine. Uh, there's a condition called Cushing's disease or Cushing's syndrome where patients have too much cortisol being produced either by their bodies or taking it as a medication that could cause uh, high blood pressure. Many drugs can cause high blood pressure as well, especially antidepressant drugs and uh, anti-allergy drugs, estrogen and oral contraceptives. Uh, Number six on my list is excess alcohol when patients drink too much alcohol. If they already have some hypertension uh, predisposition, then alcohol usually makes it worse. Hypercalcemia, so having too much calcium in the blood can also cause uh, hypertension, that's easily diagnosed by a lab test. 
insulin resistance, like type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, that causes hypertension by a very, by some complex mechanisms. But we can also uh, clarify some of that complexity, and then we can understand what's going on there. So the way that I like to explain that is when people have insulin resistance or they're eating too many carbs uh, and their blood sugar gets uh, elevated, then their body, of course, secretes insulin to control that blood sugar. Well, insulin not only helps control blood sugar, so to speak, but it also regulates mineral balance and ultimately water balance because it, insulin basically tells the kidneys to hold on to salt. And any time the kidneys hold on to salt, they're going to hold on to some water along with it. So what we see there is what we call volume overload, uh, and it's chronic volume overload because a lot of patients with obesity or type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome have elevated insulin levels chronically. That signal is constantly telling their kidneys to hold on to salt and water, hold on to salt and water, so it's no surprise that they get volume overloaded and the pressure goes up and they get hypertension. So one of the ways that we can treat that is obviously putting them on a low-carbohydrate diet. Uh, and, in fact, that is the most uh, effective dietary plan for the treatment of hypertension. We can talk about that more later, but uh, some of the work on that topic was actually uh, pioneered or at least uh, revisited, let's say, uh, by Alan Goldhammer, who's a graduate of uh, University of Western States, the same school that I went to and the same school that I teach at. Um, he's published some really remarkable studies that we might have a chance to talk about later, but uh, he runs a fasting clinic, and this is one of their specialties as a treatment of hypertension. Uh, licorice is a botanical medicine. If people take too much of it, for example, treating chronic herpes infections or something, then they can develop hypertension there. Um, certain neurologic conditions can cause hypertension. I call that neurogenic hypertension, and then I describe that in my book in a way that's really never been described before. So. Uh, irritation of the central nervous system can cause hypertension, and we have a much better understanding of that now than we ever did before. So uh, we have to look at the you know, nervous system of our patients, whether it's central or peripheral. Uh, I think chiropractic has a role there in terms of treatment, uh, and sometimes we actually have to use uh, surgical approaches for that too. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs uh, can cause elevated blood pressure. Mercury intoxication, so when patients are exposed to mercury and they accumulate some of that mercury, 8% of American women have high enough levels of mercury in their bodies to actually potentially cause health effects either in them or in their uh, offspring, children. So there was an article published, I believe, somewhere around 2002 in the Journal of the American Medical Association showing that, again, 8% of American women had high levels of blood mercury high enough to be uh, associated with adverse health effects. Um, Coming down the home stretch here on my list, there's an endocrine condition called pheochromocytoma, which is an adrenal tumor that causes periodic hypertension with usually sweating and headaches. Uh, gestational hypertension and the hypertension of pregnancy is another cause. Uh, another commonly overlooked cause, which is number 15 on my list, is primary hyperaldosteronism, also known as Kahn syndrome. So these patients have uh, an adrenal tumor, uh, not necessarily a cancerous tumor, but they have a little tumor that's just creating too, uh, secreting too much aldosterone and that causes their labs to become abnormal. When we look at them on the chemistry panel, their sodium gets a little high, their potassium gets a little low. Um, this was once thought to be rather rare, but now we know it's about 10% of hypertensive patients and about 20 to 30% of treatment-resistant patients. So uh, mm -hmm. for patients who are listening uh, and the doctors who uh, are listening as well, we all have to be aware of Kahn syndrome or hyperaldosteronism. Uh, and the way that we assess that is we look at some hormones in the blood, we look at renin and we look at aldosterone and we look at the aldosterone to renin ratio uh, and if it's greater than 20 then we start to think that this patient could have a, a little adrenal adenoma. 
Renal artery stenosis is another cause. When, when the renal arteries clamp down, then the body starts to think it's dehydrated, and so it tries to hold on to more salt and water, and then that just leads to more high blood pressure. Uh, kidney disease is another cause of hypertension. Sleep apnea, systemic sclerosis or uh, scleroderma. Thyroid disease, whether it's hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, tobacco use. Um, number 22 on my list of 25 or 24 items is upper cervical spine dysfunction. There was an article published in the Journal of Human Hypertension showing that upper cervical uh, spinal manipulation by chiropractic doctors could lower blood pressure as powerfully as two medications. Uh, wow. So that obviously proves that there's a uh, structural or spinal and or neurologic component to many cases of hypertension. Uh, vitamin D deficiency is my second to last item, and that causes high blood pressure as well. Um, usually through an, what, what I would consider, to, well, it's multiple mechanisms, but it's an intracellular mechanism. Anytime people are vitamin D deficient, their body tries to compensate for that deficiency of vitamin D and calcium by raising parathyroid hormone levels. When that happens, uh, levels of calcium inside the cell actually increase, and then the muscles clamp down and inflammatory markers get uh, produced and it causes a systemic inflammatory state, but also hypertension. And the last thing I wanted to list, which isn't actually even on my list, is uh, diet-induced chronic metabolic uh, acidosis. So most people who eat the standard American diet, also known as SAD or SAD for standard American diet, are in a state of uh, chronic mild acidosis. Uh, whereas if you look at people who follow a hunter-gatherer diet, they're usually slightly alkaline. <clears throat> So we can measure urine pH, and in my opinion, and there is some controversy about this, just like there is about anything else, but in my opinion, based on what I've read, which is quite a bit, as you might imagine, uh, I am for urine pH in myself and my patients uh, of about 7.5, because that means they're just slightly alkaline. What that means is their cortisol levels go down, their insulin resistance improves, they retain nutrients like potassium, magnesium, and calcium more effectively, and, importantly, they excrete toxins more readily, whether it's mercury or what we call persistent organic pollutants. If the urine is slightly alkaline, people detox a little faster. And if you look at that over the course of a lifetime, uh, that could be a big difference. So those are the things that I have to think of during the course of conversation when I'm working with patients. It's like, okay, what tests are we going to do? Uh, am I seeing any red flags here or yellow flags that might make me want to investigate this or make me not want to investigate it? But any good doctor should obviously go through a list. Uh, and the list I have in my book is the most comprehensive I've ever seen published because that's what I do is I compile things. Uh, so I've got a list of, like I said, about 24, 25 items that need to be considered as primary causes of hypertension. And, and I love uh, that you went over that. I love that you went over that because for people listening who aren't doctors, they can, you know, see that there's so much more that goes into hypertension beyond oh, yeah. just, you know, that, one particular so, thing. So making sure your doctor is very um, comprehensive and also for the medical students listening, you know, write these things down and make sure that these are in your differentials when you're seeing a patient with hypertension. So just make sure you're as, sure. as thorough as possible. Absolutely. So, and a lot of these things, you know, for example, I'm sure we might talk about um, background a little more later, but I graduated from one of the best medical schools in the country. And currently, right now, it's ranked number 20 in the nation, which is um, definitely top. Uh, and I did really well on, um, you know, licensing exams and all that. My point in saying that is even having done well and even having gone to a good school, I didn't learn most of this stuff in school. Uh, of my items, you know, of my 24 items or so, 
even in a good school and even studying for board exams, we probably only covered maybe 12 of those. And so the other ones are, are ones that I uh, just found looking through so many different research articles and things like that. So, uh, like, it would be entirely possible to, with all due respect for specialists and uh, cardiologists and all that, I would, I'd be very willing to bet that most cardiologists don't even go through a list that, that is this comprehensive. Now, you know, they have their specialty, and I respect that, but most medical cardiologists out there are not yet uh, testing and treating their patients for vitamin D deficiency. They're not treating them uh, aggressively enough and inappropriately enough for insulin resistance. Uh, they are not thinking of mercury intoxication. And they're certainly not thinking of uh, diet-induced metabolic acidosis. So even though these things have been well-proven to, co to, to either cause or contribute to chronic hypertension. So, you know, again, like I said, my point um, is just to say that even the best-intended student and the best-intended uh, cardiologist might not be aware of all of these different factors, let alone how to treat them and test for them. Um, right. So, again, that's, that's why I covered the things that I did in my book. And that's the advantage that I have as an author, um, as you were mentioning you know, in the introduction, which I appreciate. With my background, I've, I don't want to say I've seen it all, but I've seen a lot. And <laughs> yeah. I, learned from some, I learned from some really great doctors. You know, Alan Gaby was my nutrition teacher at Bastyr, so was, and Walter Crinion taught us environmental medicine. And I, I was a seminar junkie from the time I was, like, 23. I would go to all these seminars with Jeff Bland and, Mm -hmm. I, you know, really just applied myself to the to the uh, discipline of healthcare. Uh, right, right. Like I think my degrees probably only represent twenty percent of what I know when I think about it. Um, so having gone to so many different programs and schools and seminars, I've just collected data, and you know that's what my books are—is a compilation of those experiences and exposures. Yeah, yeah, we're we're similar in that. I, I definitely learned most of what I've gotten out of seminars, and I was always a student that was going to as many seminars as I could because as a student you get the discount, you know. So I just really took yeah. advantage of that. And actually, I'm really glad you mentioned Alan Gaby. He's going to be on the show coming up as well as um, uh, Walter Crinion too. So that's going to be awesome. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to um, use your expertise to kind of hear about the different types of medicine that you studied and, like, the pros and cons in terms of, you know, addressing various diseases, you know, specifically hypertension. So what are the advantages of, of each approach and then the disadvantages that you can, that you can see? Sure. Well, if we talk about um, medications to start with, uh, since that was the first part of your question, the nice thing about using drugs is they're subsidized by the government and they're subsidized by all these insurance plans, so patients feel like they're getting... They're getting the easy. They're getting the easy route. You know, they can go. They can go to some, you know, uh, corporate store, and they can get a, five, a four dollar prescription. And if they just look at things superficially, and I'll leave that to you know our own discretion as to whether or not that's the case. Uh, but for a lot of patients who don't really give a lot of thought to their health, they think they've got it made. You know, they went to see a doctor. The doctor said you have this problem. You need this drug. And hey, it only costs four bucks. Now you can go home and eat, uh, you know, Cheetos while you sit on the couch and watch the average 10 hours of television per day. So the nice thing about drug use is that it doesn't require much thought on the part of the doctor and even less on the part of the patient. So I'm not trying to sound too cynical, but I am. So uh, my point is, is that people often really don't care. You know, like I grew up really interested in health, but a lot of people aren't. And, you know, maybe they're interested in something else or maybe they're just vegged out and tuned out in general. Uh, but... That's the only thing I can say about the, or that's the main thing. They're, drugs are convenient. 
Uh, they're, uh, I, I was going to say they're predictable, but that's also true of nutri nutrients. So nutrients are predictable as well. Um, so let's see. What else could I say nice about drugs? Uh, no thinking <laughs> involved. Uh, no lifestyle changes. So I don't. That's probably as far as I can go with my list. When patients come in with acute hypertension, they're getting a drug. Uh, whether it's in, you know, if, if it's high enough, if it's in my office, then I probably just send them to the emergency room. But if they come into the emergency room, because I've worked in emergency rooms, then we usually give them uh, 10 milligrams of intravenous hydralazine. That knocks their blood pressure down. We repeat that every once in a while as we need to, and then we put them on ACE inhibitors. So there are different classes of drugs, which is also part of your question. ACE inhibitors uh, have some benefits. They help kind of protect the kidneys, but they about 10% of people get a chronic cough from them. Sometimes they get a skin rash or they get what we call angioedema, um, which can be mild or it can be fatal. So sometimes people just drop dead after they get a uh, ACE inhibitor. Uh, we try to avoid that pro, right? So for people listening that yeah, are on the exactly. that, that would be an ACE inhibitor. Okay, go for it. Yep, yep. So all the prills are ACE inhibitors, like lisinopril, captopril, things like that. Um, so they're okay drugs. Uh, they're, they're commonly used. The most commonly used drug for hypertension is called hydrochlorothiazide. As its name suggests, it's a, it's a thiazide-class diuretic. Um, so let's talk about that. So that's, that's considered first-line treatment for hypertension in the medical world. Usually we start at somewhere between 12.5 and 25 milligrams, uh, and then we can bump our way up and we can add other drugs, which is more commonly what we do. Uh, but let's look at the metabolic effects of hydrochlorothiazide. So, uh, a lot of patients don't consume enough potassium. The uh, Institute of Medicine, Food and Nutrition Board, National Academy of Sciences, uh, a couple years ago, increased what they thought should be the average intake of potassium to 4.7 grams per day. 90% uh, of Americans do not get that because they're not eating the fruits and vegetables and carrot juice and other things like I'm sipping on right now. So <laughs> they're already potassium deficient. And then we put them on a drug called hydrochlorothiazide, which makes them more potassium deficient. And potassium is one of the key regulators of blood pressure because it offsets the effects of calcium and mostly sodium. So we, in a way, it's – I'm not trying to sound too conspiratorial about this, but there is a component of we're actually making patients worse when we give them hydrochlorothiazide. We're lowering their blood pressure, but we're making them more potassium depleted, and therefore we're reinforcing their dependence on the drug. Uh, furthermore, when patients are progressively potassium and magnesium and calcium depleted, uh, in this case, let's just talk about uh, potassium magnesium, then they develop insulin resistance. Well, like I said, when insulin resistance kicks in and serum insulin levels increase, uh, that causes the kidneys to hold on to more sodium. So then the patient's going to need more drugs, right, because their blood pressure is just not being controlled well enough with this medication. But we don't mention the fact that the medication is actually making them worse. So mm -hmm. that's... You know, that's kind of what happens behind the scenes. We don't talk about that stuff in medical school. Uh, but that is what happens. Patients who are taking hydrochlorothiazide, it raises their blood sugar, it raises their triglycerides, it makes their cardiovascular uh, risk factors uh, exacerbated, but it does lower the number of the blood pressure. So if we look at uh, blood pressure numbers, things look better. And there's some reduction in, in mortality, I believe, in contrast to just not letting, not treating these patients at all. But it does worsen their metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and insulin resistance. Uh, another newer class of drugs are called angiotensin II receptor blockers, uh, and you can recognize those because their their name ends with the phrase sartan or the suffix sartan. So, like losartan, for example, is an angiotensin II receptor blocker. Uh, 
those are similar to the ACE inhibitors, except they don't cause cough. But I actually think those are okay drugs. Uh, I've used them, and that's my second-line drug when I'm working with patients, usually a uh, ARB, as we call them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't cause the cough. Uh, the nice thing about losartan, for example, as, as a model of the uh, sartan drugs, is that it actually increases uric acid excretion. Uric acid is one of the metabolic intermediates that actually mediates uh, insulin resistance. So anything we can do to get uric acid levels lower is to our advantage. And there are mm-hmm. other drugs we can use, too. Alpha-2 agonists are used more for, like, urgent hypertension. Uh, alpha-1 blockers are very rarely used because they usually they, they can often make people pass out, like we had talked about before, so blood pressure gets too low. Uh, beta blockers are commonly used, but beta blockers kind of knock people out. They cause fatigue and depression. Um, right. And not, no surprise, all these drugs, of course, have negative effects. So the average mm-hmm. population compliance with medications for hypertension is only about 50%. Well... Why is that? It's because of the negative effects. People don't want it, you know. When people mm-hmm. have high blood pressure, they often don't have any symptoms, even though, like we said before, they're progressing towards heart attack and stroke at a faster rate. Um, but when we put them on drugs, if they weren't symptomatic before, then they could be now. So, for example, we put them on a beta blocker to lower their blood pressure, which wasn't bothering them anyway, uh, at least not to their knowledge, and then they feel fatigued and depressed. So it's not surprising that they would stop the drug. Uh, calcium channel blockers and uh, direct vasodilators or other classes of drugs that we use. And commonly we'll use two drugs, one from each class. So a real classic combination is hydrochlorothiazide with lisinopril, like you had mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, my preference is to go hydrochlorothiazide with uh, losartan for reasons I already mentioned. I think it's a safe combination. But when we use hypertensive drugs in combination, we can use lower doses and we actually get better effects. Um, and that's just that's what the research shows, and that's what we end up doing. And, uh, hmm. of course, you know, if we can treat it naturally, then I think we should do that. Yeah, so so talk about that a little bit with your expertise with chiropractic medicine and, and naturopathic medicine. So how can those, um, sure. you know, address hypertension? Sure. Well, as I mentioned before, uh, there was an article published in Journal of Human Hypertension, and I'm going to see if I can look it up on my computer real quick, uh, just so I can provide a citation for those people who might want it. Uh, this was a really interesting article, uh, again, published in a mainstream hardcore medical journal, uh, and they had 50 patients in the study, and what they showed is that uh, among patients with hypertension, if they received a very specific chiropractic upper cervical adjustment, uh, the technique is called NUCA, N-U-C-C-A, which stands for National Upper Cervical Chiropractic Association. So these are what we could call uh, chiropractic specialists who have developed and uh, mastered, let's say, this specific technique. And that's, that was the technique used in the study. And what they showed is, like I said before, a very significant reduction in blood pressure without any other treatment. And it only required one treatment from the chiropractic doctor. So it's not like these patients had to come in every week or every month, like it's more common with low back pain. They were treated once. And that was it. Wow. Lower their blood pressure. That's amazing. Lower their blood pressure for at least eight weeks, equivalent to two drugs. Now, let's say, you know, in this, for this specific technique, they have to take upper cervical x-rays. So there's some radiation exposure. There's some expense. Uh, however, for patients who aren't responding to other treatments, the, I think it's, the risk-benefit ratio is probably appropriate. Uh, but it's remarkable to get an eight-week reduction in blood pressure uh, from one single treatment uh, of, a, of a 
that doesn't involve lifestyle or drugs, uh, which are the you know the approaches that uh, I think we tend to use more often. But uh, I do seminars, you know, for different groups, and I certainly do seminars for the chiropractic profession. In fact, I just got back from a big one in Florida, Florida Chiropractic Association, where we had about we had record attendance. We had over 3,000 people there, wow. and I was telling the you know, the chiropractic doctors in the audience, you know, the chiropractic profession could own the management of chronic hypertension. Why is that? Well, what are the, what are the causes and or treatments of hypertension, which we just went through, and which of those can be either diagnosed or managed uh, in the chiropractic scope? Just, and I could say the same thing about the naturopathic scope, too. Um, and that's most of them. I mean, all it takes is lab tests and physical exam skills to, to come up with any of those diagnoses that we talked about before, and most treatments for hypertension do not need to be drugs or surgery. Therefore, uh, chiropractic doctors and naturopathic doctors and even the MDs and DOs who don't use drugs could certainly manage hypertension uh, at the level of any expert because what is, re from a practical standpoint, who's the expert or what defines expertise? It's having the right answer at the right time. And anybody who reads my book will have the right answer at the right time because that's what I've gone through and that's what I've detailed in however many hundred citations I had to go through. Um, so speaking of citations, the one that we're talking about right now is Journal of Human Hypertension 2007. This is the May issue. Um, and the title of the article is Atlas Vertebra Realignment and Achievement of Arterial Pressure Goal in Hypertensive Patients, a Pilot Study. Uh, the lead author's name is uh, Bakris. He's a chiropractic doctor. B-A-K-R-I-S is his name. Uh, he has a YouTube video that some people might want to take a look at. But long story short, what they showed here is a chiropractic manipulation as a single treatment on a single occasion, lower blood pressure equivalent to two drugs. Very impressive. That is very impressive. What would be some things um, from, you know, naturopathic medicine standpoint, you know, sure. herbs and nutrients and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. certain lifestyle adjustments um, for managing hypertension? Sure. So uh, let's talk about diet first. And... You know, chiropractic doctors and naturopathic doctors are the only doctors out there who get trained in nutrition. Uh, and my medical school, as great as it is, and with its reputation for producing good primary care doctors and family medicine doctors, which is what I was studying to, uh, to follow, uh, we got not a single lecture in the entire four years on nutrition. Uh, in our endocrinology class, yeah, nothing, zero. Uh, in our endocrinology class, our teacher told us, uh, that diet therapy is the most effective treatment for the treatment of uh, diabetes. And then we talked about drugs for the next six weeks. Uh, <laughs> so even though, even though there was an appreciation of the, of the data, which the data says diet's the best, uh, we're not going to talk about it in medical school because, um, you know, it's not the paradigm. They, they just have blind spots. The medical profession, and this includes the osteopathic profession, of course, because... Uh, we're trained at least as much, if not more, uh, because we get the drug surgery and spinal manipulation. Um, they're, they're, it's just a big blind spot, uh, and we could ask why that is, and we cannot come up with a reasonable answer other than to uh, go into our bag of conspiracy theories, which we'll, we'll do that later. Um, so in chiropractic college, I certainly learned a lot about diets. I don't want to make diet sound like it's exclusively naturopathic, uh, but in naturopathic school, we certainly got a lot more on diet. Uh, and so dietary options that people can consider, of course, we've all heard of avoiding salt and avoiding fat, uh, which probably, uh, I don't even know if I'd say that's accurate. 
because some of the most effective diets for weight loss, diabetes control, hypertension control aren't necessarily low in fat. What they're low in is carbohydrates for reasons I already explained. Too many carbs, too much insulin, too much salt and water retention, boom, there's hypertension. Uh, the medical community either doesn't know that or refuses to acknowledge that, and it's probably more the latter, because they have access to the same research I do. Uh, but they're choosing to not see it for some peculiar reason. Uh, so what, what reason would that be? You know, they're in, they're in business to see patients, run tests, and prescribe drugs and say, you need to come back in two months. And that's what we learn to do in, you know, in hospitals and stuff. So... Um, it's a whole, and, and that I, I can do that in five minutes. You know, I can come into a, a room. I've never seen this patient. I had to do this in, in my family medicine residency um, for the time that I was there, and uh, I would walk into these rooms. I don't know this patient from anything, and their charts three inches thick, uh, and we're so time pressured. The best I'm going to be able to do is say, "Look, you've got high blood pressure. You need to take this drug, and I want to see you back here in two weeks or two months or whatever." But there is no time to talk about diet, nutrition, lifestyle, uh, values, goals. Like, what are you doing with your life that is letting you live like this, you know? That, to me, is where the power is. Um, so even though I talk about nutrition, and obviously we're getting into that conversation right now, for me the real power is, is understanding people and understanding why it is that they eat the diet that they eat, you know? Uh, it's one thing to say that, you know, too many calories and too much fat and too much salt contributes to hypertension. Okay, we know that. Well, question becomes, why do people eat that way? Uh, and we can look at the societal, uh, you know, and the, the, the symphony that creates the environment that we live in uh, has many players in it, right? Uh, there are good doctors, there are bad doctors, there are political interests, there are financial interests, there are corporate influences, but, you know, our reality, quote-unquote, collective reality, is shaped by these forces, and that creates what people consider to be their reality. And, you know, they take that in, and they watch television, and they're told about drug X and A, B, and C, and all, you know, as they're sitting there watching. Um, and so pretty soon I think people get kind of lulled into an apathy that makes these drugs sound normal, as if human physiology were inherently defective, which it is not. So not on a population-wide basis, anyway. Uh, so, anyway, let's get back to diet. So, <laughs> what are the factors that would cause someone to eat in an unhealthy way? Too much stress, not giving enough attention. Maybe they're just kind of checked out of their own reality. So, part of the conversation I try to have with people, patients, when they come to see me, is understanding who they are and what they are and where they're going and what their goals are in their life so that we can align their health care plan with their life values and goals. To me, that's mm -hmm. critically important, So, which is why I got off on that tangent. Uh, as we, you know, try to recruit them back into a wellness model of healthcare, we talk about diet. So eliminate the carbs, cut back on the salt, uh, try to exercise more, try to make healthier choices. And this is where we get into uh, something that you and I, Lauren, are very interested in, which, of course, is the paleo diet. So mm -hmm. uh, I've modified that over the course of writing a few articles. Uh, it's described in my book. Uh, as what I call the supplemented paleo Mediterranean diet. The foundation, of course, is the paleo, paleo diet. A good reference on that is Wolverine Cordain's work, who's published uh, in many journals, very well-respected, um, kind of a professional friend of mine. And uh, he wrote this book called The Paleo Diet, which I recommend for a lot of my patients. It's got concepts in the front and recipes in the back. They're, they're caveman recipes, pretty easy. 
So uh, the diet basically comes down to these components, which I'm about to tell you, if anyone wants to write this down. It's fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, berries, and lean sources of protein. There it is. Fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, berries, lean sources of protein. Uh, that's the basic paleo diet because you have to think of what people would eat if they were living the paleo experience, which is uh, no Whole Foods market, no stop and shop, and, uh, you know, no uh, energy drink or 500-calorie latte uh, to start the day off. So fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and berries is what human physiology developed upon, and that's what we should be eating, and that's what I try to eat as much as I can. Um, there are other food components we can put in there, like chocolate. You already talked about that. Uh, <laughs> red wine and olive oil. You know, we wouldn't find those things in nature necessarily in, the, in that form, but we can consume those, and those actually do have some cardioprotective benefits. Uh, beyond the diet, there are five components to what I again mentioned as a supplemented paleo Mediterranean diet. Uh, it's fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and berries as the foundational diet. I have patients take a multivitamin and multimineral just to correct their deficiencies. That gives them some vitamin D, calcium, magnesium, potassium, obviously B vitamins. Uh, number three is I make sure they're getting plenty of vitamin D. So a lot of people don't get enough. The uh, physiologic requirement in adult men is 4,000 units a day. Most people don't get near that much. Even when I lived in Texas and we did a research study down there, we measured vitamin D levels in 157 patients. And out of the 157 consecutive rheumatology patients, 156 of them were vitamin D deficient. So up here in the Northwest where I am now, and perhaps even down where you are in uh, California, you're going to see patients who are vitamin D deficient. Simply living in a sunny climate does not give one vitamin D. One has to be exposed to that sunshine. And if one's living indoors and, you know, wearing hats and sunscreen and long sleeve shirts and long pants, it's just not happening. So that's the third component to the program. After that, we use combination fatty acids, which in this context means fatty acids derived from flax oil, borage oil, and fish oil. Uh, that gives us uh, ALA, which is alpha-linolenic acid from flax oil, GLA, which is gamma-linolenic acid from borage oil, EPA and DHA from fish oil, chemical names for those are eicosapentaenoic acid and docosahexaenoic acid. All of those have anti-inflammatory and cardioprotective benefits. The fifth component is we put them on probiotics uh, to modify their gastrointestinal microbial ecology in such a way that it reduces systemic inflammation, which is a contributor to hypertension. So in a nutshell, that's the basic diet. On top of that, we can add other supplements. Got it. So anybody listening who has hypertension and, you know, some of those other um, causes have been ruled out. Those are some important things to, to make sure that they're doing in their daily routine. So it's the, the diet, the multivitamin, the vitamin D, the, the fish oils, and the, the uh, probiotics, right? Absolutely. I think for most people that's true. Um, in my book, especially the one of the newer editions of the book that's about to come out as soon as I finish it, which apology on Thursday, um, but this is already mentioned in the books that are out on the market right now, um, the, the, the risk that we have to be aware of, and this is why it's really good to have this program supervised by a, a doctor. So, for example, if a patient out there has hypertension, they could get my book, read it, and then share it with their doctor because I just have to believe that that doctor doesn't know everything that's in that book about hypertension. So think of it that way. It might be a chance for the patient to actually educate the doctor, which should probably happen, happen more often. But the, here's the point that I want to make. It's really good to have professional supervision when a patient's doing this because uh, every once in a while I'll find a patient, and this only happens every once in a while, but I did see a patient uh, last year who had kidney disease and her potassium levels were too high. 
So normal potassium, let's say somewhere between four and five point five or so. Anything above six is what we would, is what we call what we uh, panic value. It's just too high. Uh, when potassium levels get too high, people can go into cardiac arrest and they die. So if potassium gets too high, that's a major problem. And in this patient's case, uh, her potassium fasting, you know, like a normal blood test was eight point five. So she's an example of a patient who, if I had just seen her without doing lab tests, and I said, oh, yeah, go home and eat more fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and berries, and drink some uh, potassium-rich carrot juice, it could have killed her. So right. I, I, I want patients and the listeners out there to understand that these are complex issues, and they, they really do need to be supervised, in my opinion. Uh, a, patient could, a patient out there could change their diet in a healthy way meaning more fruits and vegetables, and they could end up dying from that if they are one of those rare people who has what we call hyperkalemia, too much potassium. Mm -hmm. um, somewhat similarly, and this is really the only other risk I'll mention, uh, every once in a while we find a patient who's got hypercalcemia, too much calcium in the blood, which, as I mentioned before, can cause hypertension. Well, we don't, want, we don't necessarily want to start those patients on vitamin D at high dose, even though we all appreciate and we should always appreciate that vitamin D is very safe. Uh, however, for, it's not safe for everyone all the time. And if they've got hypercalcemia, we don't want to dose them with high-dose vitamin D because it'll just make the hypercalcemia worse, and then they can end up with a problem. So some professional supervision would really be great, and that's why, you know, I've got disclaimers in my book and a disclaimer, you know, that we can talk about right now, which is patients who are out there listening with hypertension or caring for someone who's got hypertension really should, you know, learn from what we're talking about, but get some professional consult with it because uh, there is, even though the risk might only be 1 in 100 or 1 in 200, you don't want to end up being that 1 in 200 or 1 in 100 people who has a complication from an otherwise great, highly effective, inexpensive, transformative, uh, you know, lifestyle program. Absolutely, yeah. And you patients listening, you know, forward this, this show to your doctor. You know, if maybe they don't want to read something. Maybe they can listen to it on, you know, in their podcast or something. Um, so it's it's a good resource for for doctors for sure, um, Dr. Vasquez. Anything else you want to mention and, and you know that that can be used uh, to help address hypertension? Sure. Well, I'll just go through a few supplements. Uh, so we talked briefly about diet. I, I think we talked about it sufficiently. Um, mm -hmm. Defined what it is and some of the risks involved. CoQ10, of course, when we talk about nutritional supplements, CoQ10 is high payoff. It works very well. It's very safe many collateral benefits. So when we look at drugs, we talk about side effects. Beta blockers cause fatigue and depression. Uh, diuretics cause mineral loss and worsening insulin resistance. Cool thing about a lot of the nutrients is they are natural, and the body is used to having them, and it's got the pathways to deal with them, and it actually benefits from higher doses of them, so that when we use nutrients, sometimes not only do we alleviate one problem, but sometimes we alleviate others. Uh, CoQ10 is a great example of that. Many studies have documented the effectiveness and safety of CoQ10. Um, it would reasonably be first-line treatment rather than hydrochlorothiazide. Uh, vitamin D that I mentioned before, vitamin D uh, is, is, is as effective as uh, drug therapy in patients who are vitamin D deficient when they have hypertension. Uh, magnesium and potassium, I mentioned before, average intake of potassium should be 4.7 grams per day. Most Americans get like one and a half or two. Uh, so they're chronically potassium deficient. That activates the sympathetic nervous system, uh, and no surprise, they end up with hypertension. Same thing we could say of magnesium. Uh, 
average intake should probably be somewhere between 600 milligrams to up to maybe 2,000 milligrams for some people, uh, depending on how well they're absorbing and assimilating and retaining nutrients. Uh, acetylcarnitine has been shown to have benefits. Acetylcarnitine can be used with lipoic acid, which also has some benefits. They can be, they, they're more effective when they're used together. Uh, dark chocolate, thank you very much, lowers blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so e- eating 100 grams a day of uh, 65% dark cocoa or greater percentage, like 75%, I think the one I eat is 85, uh, lowers blood pressure. It's not a huge drop, but it's, it's drug-worthy. So in order for a drug to be approved by the FDA, it has to lower blood pressure by at least 5 over 5. That's considered clinically significant. Well, dark chocolate can do that. Uh, weight loss, exercise, stress reduction, acupuncture, uh, those are some of the things that kind of come to mind, but obviously I have a lot of different treatments uh, mentioned in the book with, you know, accompanying citations. So uh, there's mm-hmm. good data on all of these things, and uh, that's why we use them. In certain patients, Absolutely. we might use one versus another. Uh, you know, a person may have a specific clinical profile that makes me want to use, you know, GLA and acetylcarnitine and lipoic acid, for example, if they have diabetic neuropathy, uh, versus CoQ10 if they have, you know, migraines or asthma or something. Uh, But there are a lot of treatments that, you know, I just talked about a few of them. There are a lot more in the book. And, uh, you know, a lot of times, and I want to say this, uh, I want to make sure that I get this point, a lot of times it's a little bit of all of the above, so to speak. patient comes in, they've got high blood pressure, we do the lab test, and we find, I I just worked with a patient uh, last month who, came to see me from out of state, and he's got high blood pressure. The guy lives the perfect lifestyle in terms of stress reduction and green drinks and all this, but lo and behold, guess what? He's toxic with lead and mercury, and interestingly enough, he's deficient in B12 and folic acid. So the combination of metal toxicity and nutrient deficiency is, in my opinion, uh, likely a contributor to his high blood pressure, and we're still doing some investigation there, so I can't claim to have the ultimate answer, but when his lab test came in showing two nutritional deficiencies and two heavy metal toxicities, I thought we were uh, at an opportunity there where we, we could intervene. And, again, that's another example where most medically trained cardiologists would never see that. They're not going to look for nutrient deficiencies, and they're not going to look for subclinical heavy metal toxicity. They wouldn't right. even know, most, of them would, most of them wouldn't even know the right test to do. They would just do, like, a blood mercury level, which is probably the worst test out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, you know, like I mentioned before, that article in JAMA, uh, blood mercury levels in American women, 8% of them have elevated blood mercury. What that really says is that a, a lot of women out there are mercury toxic because if 8% have elevated blood mercury, and blood mercury is the worst test out there, you know, if we were doing, you know, urine, uh, provoked urine test, which is what I do, uh, we'd find a lot more mercury and lead out there. Right, yeah, yeah, mercury is huge, and I know that heavy metals are so overlooked in medicine, it's just, it's insane, yeah. um, and it's, yeah. it's it's just so common, I mean, 80% is huge, so for those listening, I mean, if you're eating, if you're eating sushi, if you have um, fillings in your mouth, if you've had um, vaccines in your past, it's very likely you've had exposure to mercury, so it's something to definitely check out, especially if you have hypertension, um, for sure. Yeah. I was, uh, as you were talking, you were talking about magnesium and potassium and having more of that in your diet, I looked up some uh, sources of that for people to maybe jot down. So for magnesium-rich foods, it would be raw pumpkin seeds, spinach, Swiss chard, uh, salmon, 
sunflower seeds and halibut. Those would be the ones that are still, you know, paleo. And then for potassium, we got um, Swiss chard as well, yams, um, avocado, spinach, and papaya. So eat more of those in your diet. Um, it's probably probably the case you're deficient. Most people are deficient in, in potassium. I remember in, in naturopathic school, we had to log everything we were eating and then, you know, calculate it all out and see exactly what nutrients we were getting, weren't getting. And I thought I had a really great diet, and I was very deficient in potassium. So I know even when you think you're eating well, you can be definitely deficient in that. Um, speaking of diet, Dr. Vasquez, um, what did you eat today? And what's like a typical day of what you would eat if, if you weren't happy with today's yeah. diet? <laughs> Thanks for asking your question two different ways because then I, then I get to uh, not talk about what I ate today. Actually, <laughs> from a from an antihypertensive perspective, what I ate today, so I'll go ahead and tell the truth. It's all right. Um, <laughs> From a from an antihypertensive perspective, what I ate today was actually great because it was ultimately low carb. Um, I had a protein drink this morning. I went to a dance class at uh, nine o'clock just to kind of push the envelope, you know, because I'm like not trying to develop myself only professionally and intellectually, but I gotta take some chances. Um, hey, you said you're being honest. You, you you did Zumba class. Be honest. <laughs> I, I did Zumba, right, and. Um, <laughs> Boy, I was telling myself I can do this, and I, you know, I had never done a class like that before. So at least not, certainly not recently. So anyway, it was yeah. good. I, I had a good time, and I'm sure people who were uh, watching me do what I was doing, they were probably getting some entertainment out of it too. So um, anyway, I had a protein drink this morning. I think I had uh, a cup of green tea and then a cup of uh, so-called black tea, uh, and then some carrot juice, which I already mentioned. Um, and uh, some grass-fed beef, and later in the day, I'm going to have uh, a head of cabbage, and um, who knows what it will be after that. But generally speaking, today has been a pretty low-carbohydrate low day, and that's kind of what I wanted to do, because uh, mm -hmm. I had a lot of projects to focus on. And so the Zumba class was fun, but it's not really a workout. So uh, as soon as we're finished with this uh, interview, I'm going to go run, and then after that, I can justify eating some carbs. Uh, carbs for me are usually usually not wheat. Um, sometimes it's just fruit juice or vegetable juice, mostly carrot juice. That's the only thing I keep in the house. Um, but, you know, the more I exercise, the more I can splurge. And sometimes that means it's chocolate mousse. But uh, I just keep an eye on things overall. And that's another thing that I tell patients, too. It's like I'm, I'm not condemning them, so to speak. I mean, I think eating healthy is eating great. Uh, but it's not like they can never eat, you know, a slice of pizza again or French toast or French bread or, in my case, carrot cake or something like that. You know, it's, it's not that those things can never be eaten again. They have to be eaten within the context of a lifestyle that's working. So mm -hmm. if they're, you know, spending, like yesterday, you know, I earned whatever indulgences I had, if I had any, but, you know, I spent, um, you know, 100 minutes on the elliptical runner and burnt, you know, 1,200 calories. So, you know, then I can afford to, you know, eat a meal that might be off my list uh, on a daily basis. But, you know, if I brought some calories, then I can certainly afford to, to indulge. So it's all a matter of perspective and ratios and how things are working overall. Uh, but typically, my diet is I try to always eat breakfast because uh, it takes some stress off the adrenal glands, which are already working pretty hard in the morning anyway. Uh, typical breakfast for me might just be some type of usually grass-fed beef. I've been eating a lot of that since I moved back to the Midwest because it's so 
so easy to get here, grass-fed beef, and it's got this, a similar fatty acid profile to, you know, uh, wild-caught salmon in terms of the omega-3 fatty acids. So I usually have meat or protein drink, and then vegetables and uh, raw fruit. I eat a lot of carrots in addition to carrot juice. Try to eat some cruciferous vegetables. That's where the cabbage is coming in later today. Um, I like green beans. I like almonds. I like trail mix. Uh, but it does follow the pattern that I mentioned before. So, you know, I walk my talk for sure. Fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and berries, lean, lean sources of protein. And that's what it is. Uh, is it desserts and breads and pastries, pastas, things like that? On occasion, yes. But as a rule, no. Uh, right, right. So that's, you know, that's, that's what I tell my patients. That's what I, you know, that, those are the rules I live by as well. You definitely walk the talk, so yeah, it's, it, it sounds very similar to the way that I eat too. You know, you don't in my kitchen. There's no junk food whatsoever because if it's there, I'm going to eat it. So I make sure that anything in my in my place is healthy as all can be. And then you know, when I'm out with friends and stuff, and I'll splurge, but I don't I don't get very obsessive about it um, because sure. you know I earn it. So you, you have to be a yeah. human being in society. You can't just be too dogmatic about it. Yeah. Um, and I think we're Absolutely. pretty similar like that. I think I have maybe time for one Facebook question, or actually Twitter question. This is from Diane. I want to make sure I get to it. Um, so she said she's currently taking three blood pressure medications. Um, how long following a natural plan to wean herself off? Wait, so, it, you know, with Twitter, it's like you have to write things really small. <laughs> so she's basically asking yeah. how could she possibly get herself off of the medications, which obviously she'd have to do with her doctor. But she's taking um, sure. um Metoprolol, um, lisinopril, and triamterine. Uh-huh. Okay. So uh, triamterine is not used very much. So that's a little bit unusual. Metoprolol um, is used all the time in the hospitals. You kind of give it out like candy. Even that little Pez dispenser that said metoprolol on it. That's a joke. Uh, and what, sorry, what was the other medication? Um, it was lisinopril, which we talked about. Lisinopril, yeah. So real common there. So the reason I ask about the medications and that we look at medications the way that we do is because often we can understand uh, a lot about the patient's health based on what medications they're on. Um, and this may or may not apply to the person in question, but, you know, when I look at a drug profile like that, I'm thinking this could be a patient. It doesn't necessarily have to be, but this could be a patient who um, maybe is overweight or a little bit insulin resistant, and that's why they're on. Uh, the ACE inhibitor just to provide some kidney protection, or maybe there's some evidence of, of kidney damage, I'm not sure. Um, but that's just speculation, and like I said, it might not apply to this patient. So how long until she can get off all those drugs? Well, my first answer to that question is I have no idea, because even though I have some expertise on this topic, I don't know what the cause of her hypertension is. You know, So this person that we're talking about or any patient in general doesn't have hypertension just because the body decided to, you know, drive off the map one day, there's a cause for the hypertension. Lead, mercury, insulin resistance, hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, uh, fibromuscular dysplasia, if this is a young woman in her 20s, uh, uh, atherosclerotic uh, renal artery stenosis as a patient, let's say, in her 60s or so. So the only way to say, and the only way I would ever tell a patient in my office, you know, you can get off of this drug at this time, is to see how they respond to treatment but, like I said, treatment really needs to be based on what is the underlying cause of the hypertension to begin with. Uh, if the underlying cause of the problem isn't addressed, then this patient could be on these medications forever. 
Uh, it might be possible to replace one or two of the medications, for example, with nutrients, but um, I wouldn't, wouldn't, I couldn't offer any guarantees, and I don't even know if I would take that direction unless I, t unless I as a doctor, had done some investigation. Uh, like I said, is this lead and mercury? Is it renal artery stenosis? Is it primary hyperlactronism? So, for example, the person that we're talking about right now uh, has what we call treatment-resistant hypertension. Treatment-resistant hypertension is defined as uh, use of three or more, the need for three or more drugs, one of which is a diuretic, which I think you said she's on triamterine. Uh, oh, she's on lisinopril, so, yeah. So, or, yeah, triamterine, yeah. Right, so she's... Just look at the drug profile, unless something you know unusual happened here with prescribing. Uh, this is treatment-resistant hypertension. So there's a 20% chance that this patient has hyperaldosteronism. Well, you just need to be tested for that. Uh, and that's the uh, aldosterone to renin ratio that I mentioned before. Um, the tricky part about that is, is that it's really hard to do that test and get accurate results when people are on medication. She's on three different medications. So uh, I'd go ahead and do the test and just see what we get. Mm -hmm. uh, but as long as calcium and potassium are normal, we could probably still make some progress with the diet. Um, but, of course, I, I'm not prescribing for anyone. We're just kind of talking here in general. Um, is there a chance that this patient could get off these medications? Absolutely. Uh, can I guarantee that in the course of this radio interview? No. Uh, if it were my patient, I'd probably say, yeah, there's a there's probably an 80 or, you know, 90 percent chance we need health medications. I mean, the research has proven that. It's not simply mm -hmm. my experience, even though my yeah. uh, supports that. Uh, so what's, what are the chances of a person in this situation getting off all those meds? Mm -hmm. 89 percent, I'd say. Okay. Uh, but that also depends on is there an underlying cause that we can identify, uh, how compliant are we with taking their supplements, um, you know, is there some my problem that they can be addressed specifically, like lead, mercury, uh, Right. So basically the answer for Diane is, you know, have to make sure that these underlying causes are looked at and that the cause is addressed to the hypertension. If it's something more serious or, you know, yeah. maybe something more rare, I mean, you might need to be on those medications, but um, if it is something that is preventable, you know, with natural medicine, then, then it's, yeah, so it's probably a good chance you could get off of these things. It's just different for everybody. Everybody's very different. So, you know, maybe um, have your doctor listen to the show, have them read Dr. Vasquez's book, and then take these recommendations we've talked about with diet and lifestyle and use those and then just see what happens. That would be my advice. Sure. And that's all, yeah. that's all reasonable. That's all we can really recommend over the air right now, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, Dr. Vasquez, just I guess for the sake of time, we probably only have, you know, a few more minutes. So anything else you want to leave with our listeners before I let you go? Any fun conspiracy theories you want to share? Sorry, I have, like, oh, in the background. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Do I ever have – yeah, it was perfect timing talking about conspiracy theories. I know. Theories and I'm listening to uh, alarms in the background. Uh, well, I – you know, as as an author, I try to – represent the data accurately. Uh, and the data takes forms other than simply looking at research. So my books, all of my books are loaded with research. Uh, the book that we're talking about right now, um, Integrative Medicine and Functional Medicine for Chronic Hypertension, has several hundred citations to the research. 
as all my books do, usually in the hundreds or thousands. Um, but like I, like I mentioned before, and when I was talking about kind of the social context of these problems, we have to look beyond simply salt and potassium and calcium, magnesium, and exercise and vitamins to the forces that shape our collective reality as a society. And what forces might those be? Well, you know, television is kind of a force of its own. And who runs television stations? It's big companies. Uh, and big companies want big money. So they go to the companies, you know, it's advertising from companies that have deep pockets. And certainly the pharmaceutical uh, industry takes advantage of that, uh, which is why we see so much direct-to-consumer advertising, even though that's uh, illegal in most other countries. In the U.S., it's allowed because the American Medical Association considers that a form of education on important health matters. Uh, and it's obviously in the American Medical Association and other medical groups uh, to see their product promoted, even though they don't make the drugs themselves, they certainly make a living off of selling the drugs, visiting patients again, having them come in for a lab test. So there's certainly some collusion there. I, I, it doesn't have to be conspiracy, but they're, they're happy, a uh, synergistic partnership there between the medical profession and the drug companies. Um, medical doctors sell drugs. Drug companies want to sell their drugs, you know, and um, they do work together. Uh, if you look at national policy on hypertension, diet, and education, then, you know, who if, if let's say you were a politician, who would you go to? Uh, some naturopath down the street um, who happens to be very well educated on this topic? Or would you go to something like the American Heart Association? Probably might go to the American Heart Association. I mean, if that's what their job is and they collect, you know, data from all these authoritative experts, then maybe that's who we'd go to. Well, let's look at who... Who comprises the American Heart Association and other groups like that? Um, they have, you know, what are called pharmaceutical roundtables, where companies come in and pay a million dollars a year uh, for about a three-year term to be able to uh, advise the organization on um, policy, uh, whether that's policy for organizations or policy for medical societies, the so-called standard of care, um, you know, that's where, that's where that reality comes from, is consensus, consensus groups like this. Uh, so I think we just have to be aware of, you know, who's forming that consensus uh, and, and what their interests are beyond simply helping people. Because believe me, uh, medical practice and medical school certainly is not about, you know, waking up with our heart full of love and trying to help people every day. I, some of us do that. But that's not the culture. The culture is treat them and treat them, basically, is what we learned in, in the, uh, when I was an intern doing family medicine residency. We just try to treat people and get them off of our docket so we can go back to sleep. I mean, that's the hard reality of, of healthcare in this country, is uh, residency training is so hard on the DOs and MDs that are in there, and we're just so time compressed. I would walk into an outpatient clinic, and I'd have three rooms waiting on me, and I've got a supervisor telling me I'm late. When I, I got there as fast as I could, you know, for my hospital service. So um, it's just, again, I don't, you know, we can use the word conspiracy, and there are conspiracies out there. You know, the American Medical Association was found guilty of a conspiracy um, in the, about 1981 or so, or I'm sorry, maybe it was 88, um, because they had aligned with various medical organizations to destroy the chiropractic profession. 
And so a judge in Chicago uh, declared them to be guilty for that behavior. And, um, you know, so that's, that's objective proof that, yes, conspiracies occur. They occur on the part of the medical profession to try to squash so-called alternative medicine. And what is alternative medicine? It means not using drugs and not being dependent on the pharmaceutical industry. So, you know, if that's alternative medicine, then nature itself is alternative. Because right. natural living shouldn't require, uh, on a habitual basis, a population that, you know, is drug dependent. Uh, so, again, uh, you know, we can look at some of the things that go on behind the scenes and who's advising these organizations, which ultimately make the rules, so to speak. Another thing you can look at, or anyone could look at, you could go to the National Heart, I think it's the National Heart, Blood, and Lung uh, website of the NIH, and they have a section in there called uh, Eating Heart Healthy or something to that effect, Heart Healthy Recipes. And what I've done in my book is I went through those recipes and I itemized them in the back of the chapter because those recipes advocated by the U.S. National Institutes of Health are guaranteed to produce diabetes, obesity, and hypertension. All right. Well, what's going on with that? Why is it that the National Institutes of Health would be telling people to eat a diet that is so high-carbohydrate, like, I couldn't keep up with that diet if I were to eat it on a regular basis. Right. In terms of in terms of caloric expenditure, you know, I have to. There's no way that diet would work for me, and I'm you know a lifelong athlete. So, um, there's something going on behind the scenes yeah. that Americans should probably um, be aware of. I included <laughs> I, I included that information in the, towards the end of my chapter on hypertension in the book, so people can look at it and get my perspective. I don't think it's a cons- I don't think is it a true conspiracy? Are these organizations working in their own interest at the detriment of the American public? The answer is yes. Uh, do we want to call them evil? Well, I guess it depends on how we define evil. Uh, if our goal is to have, you know, a healthy environment and, you know, tight, healthy, strong communities of people, uh, then maybe we should do things like not encourage them to consume a diet that's going to become obese. Maybe we should reinstitute uh, physical education in our elementary schools, you know? Mm-hmm. O- obesity and high attention these days are starting in kids. Well, you know, when I grew up, we had to start, you know, every couple of days doing drills and windmills and push-ups and sit-ups and all that. I don't think kids these days are doing that. So definitely why is it, you know, the government definitely has a role in shaping the society and the most obvious way to shape society is to shape how they are, quote-unquote, educated. Well, how is it that kids these days are educated? They're educated to be physically inactive. Right. Uh, so should there be a surprise that we have a very physically inactive, overweight, hypertensive, diabetic population? I don't think, I don't think that requires any, uh, you know, any investigation as to the cause and effect of, of what's being, you know, created and promoted there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's interesting, you know, and it's it's really just about educating yourself, thinking outside the box, looking at the way that we have gone away from the natural elements and just how much it screwed us all up, basically. I mean, it's really the moral of the story is we, we don't live or move or breathe or sleep or 
you know, anything the way that we're designed to, and that is wreaking havoc on our bodies, and it's giving us high blood pressure and depression and all the above, and kids are getting fatter, and so it's really all about thinking outside the box and just seeing the way that we used to live, how we're designed to live and move and breathe and eat and all the above, and really emulating that as much as you can in 2011. Right. So... For the sake of accuracy and accountability, uh, I'd like to just add a citation or two to what I just said. So, uh, oh, and by the way, Dr. Vasquez, by the way, I have three minutes before this cuts out on us. I just want to let you know. It's actually two minutes uh, and 30 I seconds. So. <laughs> I'll do it in 30 seconds if that's all right. Okay. Uh, Pharmaceutical Roundtable for the American Heart Association uh, is comprised of 10 drug companies, all of which had to pay a million dollars, I believe, uh, to be part of that. Yeah, uh, $1 million per year for each three-year term. Uh, and this is from their website, so this isn't, you know, some random bit of information. It's actually from the American Heart Association website. So, you know, I think we have to look at who's uh, providing them with the influence that ultimately guides their policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was going to provide access to the uh, Wilk citation, but I might not have time to do that. It was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. I'm sure you can, you can certainly find it on my website because I have it uh, copied there. So just wanted to make sure that I was being clear with the fact that everything I say has got substance behind it. Absolutely, and I appreciate you being thorough with that for sure. Where can uh, listeners learn more about you and, and what you're up to and buy your book? Sure. Uh, probably, well, I've got two main websites right now. I'm always working on a few, but uh, optimalhealthresearch.com. Again, that's optimalhealthresearch.com. is what I would consider to be my main site. That's where I sell my books. My books are also on Amazon.com, uh, but you can buy them directly from my website, OptimalHealthResearch.com. You mentioned my uh, website for my practice, which is HealGrowThriveMedicine.com, and obviously that's Heal as in H-E-A-L, GrowThriveMedicine.com. Um, and you can get there from the OptimalHealthResearch.com website as well. I've got a few other sites, but the, ones that, the two that I just mentioned are the ones that are, are most up-to-date right now. Awesome. Dr. Vasquez, it's been an honor. Thanks so much for coming on the show. We'll have to have you on again so we can we can talk more about um, your other books and more in conspiracy theories <laughs> or just, just things, just observations, I guess we should say. Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, we could uh, just put a few uh, random ideas together and support them with uh, with the facts that uh, know they're true. Thanks. Sounds good to me. Have a great run, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Sounds great. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, you guys, that's the show. Thanks for tuning in. It was a great one. Um, Definitely listen to it a few times, especially if you know of anybody with high blood pressure. If you want to pass this on to your doctors, it's a great resource. Lots of citations, lots of really good information, and a lot of things that really aren't being talked about in conventional medicine. So it's important to educate yourselves and just understand what's going on. Um, Check me out, drlaurennoel.com. That's D-R-L-A-U-R-E-N. N-O-E-L.com, and I will see you guys in a couple weeks. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Get ready to rise and shine. Get ready to dive in, reach out, to grow. Get ready to launch 
and to lead. Get ready for your hire. Visit rmu.edu today to see the stats, stories, and rankings. Robert Morris University. Get ready.